so let us attend to it. Then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And that very hour, he cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits. And to many blind, he gave sight. Jesus answered and said to them, Go, and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended by me. When the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. For I say to you, among those born of women... There is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. And the Lord said, To what then shall I liken the men of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children, sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, saying, We played on the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned to you, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist came, neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by all her children. So far in the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, may we have ears to hear what your Son would teach us here And may we apply into the struggles of our own lives the lessons taught, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.
I was thinking this last week, if, if I was to make a list, do an experiment, may, maybe experiment on all of you, have all of you go home today and make a list, if you had to write the, the top virtues according to most evangelicals in America today, what would the top things be listed as a virtue? after you had to explain what a virtue was to most people in America today, what would the top things be listed as virtues? I'm, I didn't do that experiment fully, but I do think just off the top of my head uh, that the, probably the first word you would get on most lists would be authenticity. That's a virtue. Or relevance. That, that's a virtue. But I think you might be surprised... Or maybe not surprised. I think we would find a lot of people would say one of the top Christian virtues is doubt. There was a time when in the church that would have been on a list, a different list. But I think I think you would find it to be so. You may not believe me, so you can do an experiment to find out. I did do this experiment this last week. Type in uh, something along these lines. I I typed in, uh, does Jesus encourage doubting into Google? Hit the button. I didn't have a lot of time. Uh, I was in between two meetings when I did this, so I let myself just select two things to click on that came up. And um, I don't know anything about either blogger. Uh, but I'll tell you, both bloggers told me that doubt was the best Christian virtue. They didn't use the word virtue. But one of them talked about uh, Christians struggling with doubt. And he said, you know, uh, my doubt has actually brought me closer to Christ than if I hadn't doubted. My doubt has brought me closer to God than many who Push their doubt aside. So embrace your doubt, he said. Embrace your doubt, and you will come closest to Christ. That, that was one blog. I, I obviously summarized it there, but that, it's a fairly accurate summary of that one blog. The other one sought to answer the question, does Christ, uh, does Christ encourage doubting? By taking us to John 20, the story of doubting Thomas. And uh, that seems like a good place to go if you want to assess whether Christ is for or against doubting. That that would be a great place to go, doubting Thomas. And after this long summary of Thomas, in which I got the, the feel that Thomas is the hero of the apostles. Because, you know, he had had faith in Christ for three years. And what did he get for it? He got anguish. That's actually what the blog said. Anguish. And so, this this was in the blog. He wasn't going to be fooled twice. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Thomas wasn't going to be fooled twice. And so, Thomas laid out very stringent guidelines for whether he would follow Christ and believe that Christ was risen He required multiple layers of proof. He wanted to see and touch. He wanted to feel not only the handprints, but also the side. 
Maybe someone could fake a, a hand, you know, maybe someone would throw a nail through their, their hand to convince you that they were Jesus. But you can't fake the spear gash from three days ago. So here's Thomas, the hero of the faith, a good scientist. And he's not going to believe until he's given the right evidence. This blog painted Thomas in magnificent doubting terms. But then I had a moment of hope because the, the, the blogger said, you know, how do you think Jesus felt about this friend of his acting this way? Well, you know, we don't have to guess how Jesus felt. This, the text tells us. And I thought, wonderful. We're going to hear what Jesus thinks about doubting. And then I was informed, well, Jesus isn't insecure. So he doesn't have a problem with people doubting him. Um, and look, he accepts Thomas. So there you go. That's how Jesus feels about doubting. And I thought, the text actually tells us what Jesus said about doubting. And the text didn't, the blog didn't mention that verse at all. John 20 doesn't have us see Christ say, Oh, Thomas, well done. Peter, John, take a look at Thomas. How wise he is looking for proofs. No, no, no. Here's, here's Thomas. He's blessed. He's your new leader. No, the, the text actually shows us Christ saying, Christ says, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Christ restores the doubter. Yes. But he doesn't paint that as a virtue. The virtue is faith. Without the doubt. That's the virtue. But I think, again, I just picked those two examples. You read others. You'll, you'll see that doubt is seen as a great virtue of the faith today. Well, maybe, maybe you don't view it as a virtue, but maybe you do struggle with your assurance at times because you wake up some morning and you find you have doubts. And, and you don't view that as a good thing. You actually view it as a, oh no, am I saved type of thing. We, we should acknowledge that. Me criticizing these blogs isn't, isn't me saying Christians never doubt. We're imperfect this side of heaven. And so... You wake up some morning probably with doubts. Or you hear that tragic, horrific news. Or have that difficult moment. The dark clouds of providence are looming over your existence and the doubts set in. How should you respond? I, I think that's the important thing for us. These blogs are responding by telling you glory in the doubts. But actually, our text in Luke shows us the best way to deal with our doubts. Because in our text, we find John, the very cousin of Jesus Christ, the herald for the Messiah, the one of whom Christ says right here in our text, that there was no old covenant saint who was, who was greater than John. 
of, of all of them. No prophet, not Moses, not David, not Isaiah. None of these men were greater than John. And yet here's John in a jail cell. And he has a moment of doubt. What does he do with it? This is gonna, these two points are going to seem so simple. Unless you're in the moment of doubt. What does John do with his doubt? We see in our text that he takes his doubts to Christ and he accepts the testimony of Scripture. He takes his doubts to Christ and he accepts the testimony of Scripture. John doesn't send to the Pharisees to see what their current opinion is of Christ happens to be in that moment. He doesn't send to the priests, the scholars, the elders, all the people who, if, if this is the Messiah, surely these will be the ones coming on board to support his move, to overthrow Rome and retake the throne of David. He doesn't send to these people to get their opinion of Christ or their spiritual advice. He doesn't send out a general public opinion poll. What do you all think? I'm struggling a little bit with my faith, but but what do you all think? No, John sends right to the source. His doubt is about Jesus, so he goes to Jesus. In essence, our text shows him saying to Christ, I believe you are the Messiah. Then again, I I thought the Messiah was going to look a little different. I thought maybe his reign would move forward a little faster or be a little bit more aggressive or maybe more militaristic. Maybe uh, uh, that you would be sitting on Herod's throne by now. Uh, Whatever John was thinking, he's clearly struggling a little bit because we're told that he hears about what Christ is actually doing and it's not what he was expecting. So no matter how much he's glorying in what Christ is doing now, he's starting to wonder, but is he just another prophet? Or is he really the Messiah? And so he just asks that. I I thought it was going to be different. I thought you'd act more swiftly, affect change more in a different manner. I was told the herald of the Christ was me. And instead of sitting, banging one of those stick things and announcing people into your presence, I'm in a jail cell, getting ready to die. Are you the Christ? Or in other words, was I wrong about you? There's his doubt, and he lays it right out at Jesus' feet. So different from how so often in the church today we assess our doubts. Uh, We're shaken by circumstances, disappointments of life. We doubt something we've always been taught is true in the church. And so we turn to all the wrong sources with our doubts. If you've had a friend who's walked away from the faith, uh, especially current days, it's very popular to talk about uh, um, this uh, 
what is that D word? Uh, the deconstruction, that's the word, of our faith, right? Doubts that lead to reassessing everything until, of course, you don't believe in God. Or you make a new God. Those are, th- that's really how it ends every time. But why? Because the doubts are taken to the wrong places. The doubts, for example, are often, I notice, taken to social media and put before the culture at large. I I always have believed the gospel, but then, you know, I have these gay friends and Jesus seems to be against that in the Bible, and so I just don't even know what to do with my faith anymore. And wouldn't you know, the culture applauds that. They, they don't tell you, no, 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 you have to believe the scriptures. Take it to the culture, and the culture says, you're right, Jesus must be mean. Or the Bible can't present Jesus. Take it to the wrong place. Your doubts are the things that are put forward as truth instead of taking it to Christ. Or we take it, maybe not as publicly to the culture at large, but we take it to other Uh, professing believers who have already doubted and rewritten the gospel. And then we're surprised that they teach us their new version of the gospel. We take it to people that for 2,000 years of church history would have been declared heretics by the church. And then we're surprised when they, claiming of course they aren't heretics, they wouldn't be false teachers. And then we find we no longer believe the Bible at all either. Take it to all the wrong places. Maybe we take it to ourselves. And so your doubts turn, whatever you mean by the word faith, now is not faith in Christ, faith in the gospel, faith in the word of God. Now your faith turned internally because of your doubts becomes a journey. And you know, the destination isn't what matters in your journey. It's the journey itself. You need to discover yourself. And you're surprised then if either Jesus no longer is relevant to your self-faith, or if Jesus suddenly doesn't resemble the Christ of Scriptures, but resembles you. These are the things we do with doubt. This is an epidemic in the church of our day. I hope it's not an epidemic in your heart. And honestly, looking at the faces here, I don't believe it is. But you probably have someone you know whom you've sung praise or hymns with in the past, who you've sat next to during a prayer meeting, who is exactly like this, taking their doubts to all the wrong places and glorying in doubt. But John, he takes it to Christ. I'm doubting, so tell me. Tell me if I'm wrong. Tell me if I was right. He takes it to Christ. This is what we need to do as well. Take it to the Lord. As the old hymn says, Take it to the Lord in prayer. Yes, take your doubts to the Lord in prayer. 
And then the second thing John does is that he accepts the testimony of scriptures. Now I'm going to have to walk you through a few things to get you to that point, aren't I? So let's just look at the text and here's the question asked and then what does Jesus do? We read, it's almost like Jesus initially doesn't open his mouth. Do you see that scene here in Luke? John sent us to ask you this. And immediately, that very hour, Jesus just started walking around town with them following and healing people, casting out spirits, making the blind to see. Didn't even say anything to them at first. An hour of miracles put before their eyes. Now these are miracles that have already been taking place. Miracles that have already been reported to John, aren't they? That's how the text starts. Some of John's disciples reported to him all of these things. What things? The, the servant who was dying and the centurion said, just speak the word and he'll be healed. And he was healed. The dead man on an on a, a open coffin being carried to his own funeral. And Jesus said, get up. And he got up. And on that mountainside before he preached the sermon in John 6, multitudes, the plural of multitude, which is multitude means many people, but the multitudes were healed. Multitudes of demons cast out. The message already got back to John, but perhaps John's eyewitnesses, his messengers, hadn't actually seen it themselves. They're just reporting what others have said. But now they are acting as John's eyes and ears. He's stuck in prison. And so the eyes and ears of John are taken on a tour of an hour of what Christ can do. An hour in which more is done for the broken of Israel than all the chief priests and scribes have done in a thousand years. And having done an hour of that work, Christ says to them, go and tell John. He doesn't say, yes, I'm the one you've been waiting for. Or, no, you need to wait for the other. He says, go tell him. And, blessed is he who is not offended because of me. And John knows exactly what that means. John understands that Jesus just said, yes. But he understands that because what Christ puts on display is not something in a void. What Christ puts on display before John's witnesses is Scripture fulfilled. God's promises fulfilled. Your, your Bible probably has two Two texts at least listed right next to verse 22. Most of your Bibles probably have little footnotes. Mine has perhaps the two most obvious. One we read earlier today, John, uh, Isaiah 35, verse 5. We read it with Bill about when the Messiah comes, there will be healing. Healing for the blind and the sick. 
The other one my text has listed, perhaps yours just as well, is, in my opinion, the most obvious, Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. A text that Jesus actually preached a sermon on earlier in Luke. Well, he, it was a short sermon. He read the text, and then he said, Today, this is fulfilled in your presence. Short sermon, powerful sermon. That the Messiah will open the eyes of the blind, heal those who are broken and set at liberty those who are imprisoned. Isn't it interesting? Jesus doesn't do that right there, but he's sending this clear reference to what the Messiah would do to a man who is in prison and doubting. Now we know that John doesn't get out of that prison cell short of death, but that is really irrelevant, isn't it? His soul has been set free from the tyranny of the devil. And so he can languish in that prison, not seeing some glorious kingdom on earth. It's irrelevant. The Messiah has come. He is set free from the tyranny of the devil. And when he dies, he goes in comfort to be forever with his Lord. John picks up on that one, I think. There are many other texts in the Old Testament as well that put on display this, this uh, glorious, glorious Messiah who will come and, well, among other things, bring healing in his wings. What a beautiful statement. As he arrives and comes as the sun shining over us, healing will come in his wings. Psalm 146, 7 and 8, you can also look up for a clear example of the blind, deaf, crippled, and mute. So when John hears Christ's response, he knows that this is the Messiah. See, part of his doubt had been only, I think, contemplating half of what the scriptures had said about the Messiah. Because all of those texts also contain, most of them anyway, Isaiah 61, for example, contains judgment. The day of the wrath of the Lord. And think of John's ministry. That was his job, to to warn of the wrath to come. And instead of the Messiah purging the sons of Levi through whatever method earthly eyes might have composed as, as the way the Messiah should do that, he saw instead Christ healing. But Christ reminds him, the wrath has only ever been half of the Messiah presented. And Christ is here in John's day For the first half. To redeem. And to set free. And to renew. He will come again. And we'd better listen to John's preaching as well. Because when he comes again. All who have doubted and rejected his gospel. 
will have lost their opportunity. Today is the day of salvation. Then is the day of wrath. John was right. The day of wrath's coming. And Jesus is the one bringing it. But today, we live in the age, the year of the Lord's favor. John lived in the year of the Lord's favor. You and I live in that same year. It hasn't ended yet. John accepted Christ's word. Even though he didn't see it with his own eyes. Do you find that interesting? The same disciples had said, hey, we heard these other people saying that they'd seen Jesus do all these things. And John had doubts. The same disciples come back and say, well, now we've seen him do these things. And John stops doubting. Because they were sent to tell him they were the messengers of Christ. One of those blogs I read said, none of us can be 100% certain of almost anything. Kind of one, I almost called Jillian up. That's a fun sentence, isn't it? None of us can be 100% certain of almost any... Way to hedge your bet, huh? That, that's, a, that's a nonsensical state. It says nothing. Take the almost out, and it's a ridiculous statement. Because you're claiming... Oh, the next sentence was, this is just as certainly true for Christians as non-Christians. That means nothing. But you see, John John understood. John understood what the scriptures declare and what you and I must receive, though we don't have Christ performing miracles in this room this morning. We must know the promises of God are 100% certain. And if eyewitnesses declare that Jesus is clearly fulfilling these promises or has fulfilled them, then doubt can be put aside. John was never again out of prison to see for himself, but he believed. What of us? Well, the remainder of the section, 24 through 35, I'm sure we could have done a separate sermon looking at a bunch of things about John, but but I think the essential thing for us to pick up here in Luke is the contrast Jesus gives us. John has doubts. He takes it to Christ, and he believes Christ's word. In contrast, there are other doubters who resemble a lot more what we see praised in the evangelical church today. Especially looking at the last several verses here. The Pharisees and lawyers, that's the scribes, that when you see lawyers, you think, you think courtroom. Think, think Bible courtroom. They were like the seminary professors who argued case law for civil life in Israel. So it was, it was like taking a seminary professor and a lawyer and throwing them in a blender. Right? The scribes. When you take those people and the Pharisees and they, they rejected John and they're rejecting Christ. And in essence, what does Christ say to them? In verses 31 through 35, I believe that Christ is in essence saying, if you are determined not to believe, there's nothing that will shake your faith. 
If you're determined to believe in unbelief, to have faith in your doubts, if you're determined not to receive by faith alone the testimony of God, then there's nothing that will shake you in that. Look at how he presents that. He gives us this this little imagery of children sitting around and nothing is going to satisfy the child. Of course, we know adults like this too, don't we? Nothing's going to satisfy them. Well, I, I played the flute for you and you were too gloomy. Oh, I wanted to mourn and you were... You are celebrating. Well, which is it you want? Do, do you want celebration and joy? Is that what the religion should be? Celebration and joy? John, John came the absolute example of a very ascetic believer. So, someone who uh, is very cut down and disciplined and all about the religion and I don't have time to go to your wedding and I don't have time to go and celebrate and party and all I'm going to drink is locust and eat or uh, eat locust and honey and drink water I'm not going to parties uh, right John was the epitome of uh, <clears throat> not living for this world and what did they say he's, a, he's got a demon what kind of nut would live like that. But then Jesus comes and he says, well, I, I go to that wedding, brought some wine, made wine. I, I, I hang out with sinners and have feasts and enjoy a meal at the end of a hard day. And you say, what a wicked person. He can't be a good example of godliness. Well, which do you want? Well, they want neither. That's the point. They're determined to reject the Messiah and his herald. And so they will. And they will make up excuses that make no sense because they contradict each other. And that's how unbelief is. Constantly looking for excuses and will find them and rest in them no matter what. In the church today, this is how it is, isn't it? So often. Well, we, we don't want one of those serious churches that talks all about sin and is mopey and uh, you're too serious. We need more clapping and celebration. But, but you know, if, if you bring that to them, what, what is the evangelical church experienced? With their worship all... Happy and exciting, by the way, there's nothing wrong with a rejoicing, joyful worship. We ought to have that. But, but the more we've made that the focus of our worship, has that satisfied people in their unbelief? No. Because then the church that has the most energetic, joyful worship service is told they don't care enough about social issues or about the needs of people. And you're too... You're too introverted celebrating you middle class whatever. Right? That, that's what we find. And it's the same voices saying both things. 
It's exactly what Christ is talking about. If we do not believe and are determined to not believe, if we exalt doubt, then doubt will always win. But Christ says wisdom is justified by her children. Which is just Christ's way of saying, if you are not offended because of me, whatever mockery you receive for faith now will be, will be shown false in the end. On the last day, wisdom, wisdom will display to all the world that faith in Christ alone was the right belief. That blind faith, so to speak, the repenting of our doubts and the trusting what Christ says in scriptures is indeed worth it. Now, I said a minute ago that John, he, he received all this testimony of Scripture without ever being an eyewitness of what was going on once he was in jail. What about your doubts and mine? We're removed 2,000 years from all those miracles Christ was doing, so what can we do to believe in the midst of our doubts? Do we... Do we look for someone else to perform a miracle for us? Or or do we reject it because we can't verify what's said in the scriptures? The New Testament actually directly addresses this, doesn't it? In two places, some of the latest, last written books in the New Testament address the question of our struggle of doubt and how we ought to respond to it. And it's just like John, by receiving the word of Christ. Here, for example, the beginning of John's letter to the church, 1 John. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen, not we, you and me. We, John, and the other apostles, right? John and the others of that day. You didn't see it. You didn't see it. But he's writing to you that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifest and we have believed and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was from the father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and we have heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy might be full. Do you doubt? Look to the Scriptures. These things we have written that your joy might be full. In his last written correspondence of which we are aware, Second Peter, the Apostle Peter says the same thing. He says there's a day coming when he's about to die and he doesn't want you left out. 
He doesn't want you left in your doubts unaware. So he writes, For we, once again, not we, you, and him, but he and the apostles, we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. You weren't with him. But then hear what Peter says. And so... We, now it's you and me and him, we have the prophetic word confirmed which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. What's more dark than doubt? Discouragement. The moment of unbelief in your heart. Peter says that shines like a light in a dark place until the day dawns. And the morning star arises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of men, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So what are you to do with your doubts? Take them to the culture, throw them up on Instagram, Are you to go to other people who are doubting for a support group? No. Peter and John agree. And John the Baptist would cheer this on. You take it to Christ. Plead with Him. Open your word to me, Lord. And let me see what my doubts question. And then open the word. And read. And receive what eyewitnesses have brought to you by the Holy Spirit so that your joy might be full. For blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Blessed is the one who is not offended by Christ. Let's pray.